Hi, this is Mike Adams. Thanks for listening to Adams on Agriculture. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Informing America's farmers and ranchers, it's Adams on Agriculture. Produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Here's your host, Mike Adams. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Adams on Agriculture. Thank you for joining us and letting us be part of your day. Hope you're staying warm wherever you are. Well, this uh, winter blast uh, hitting a lot of the country. Coming up on our program today, we're going to talk with Mike Steenhook, Executive Director of the Soy Transportation Coalition. Some good news about an announcement just recently about some infrastructure projects uh, on the river. We'll talk on the river system. We'll talk about that. Arlen Suderman with INTLFC Stone joins us to talk markets and this week's USDA numbers. And Liz Wagstrom, Chief Veterinarian for the National Pork Producers Council, will join us as well to bring us up to date on the ongoing and stepped-up efforts to keep African swine fever out of the United States. So all that coming up on today's program. But first, we started off by talking with Todd Neely with DTN. Todd and I were just in Houston this week for the National Ethanol Conference. And Todd, while the weather there was not exactly resort-like, I would say it, it was resort-like compared to the weather we came back home to. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I get home in Omaha last night and snow's blowing around and wind chill. And yeah, I'm ready to go back to the south. Yeah, the cloudy, rainy 50 degrees of Houston all of a sudden seems pretty good. Well, it was <laughs> yeah. I thought it was it was an interesting meeting. I I called it guarded optimism and when I talked with Bob Deneen, senior strategic advisor for the Renewable Fuels Association, he took off the word guarded. Uh, he thinks uh, the industry is just very optimistic that 2020 will be a a bounce back year for the ethanol industry. Yeah, you know, I I think that is a general sentiment. And I, and uh you know, there's still a lot out there. I mean, we talk about all the issues that this industry has faced and, uh, you know, still a lot out about uh, what EPA is really going to do with the RFS. You know, we've got um, we've got a reset rule that was basically killed by the, the EPA, but it's still floating around out there. And, uh, you know, come 2023, the RFS will have to be uh, reset in some form. And so while I think... Um, you know, while I think some of that's still still off in the distance, you know, it's an election year, that's probably not going to happen. I do think that there is a lot of reason for optimism. I think, um, you know, I think a lot of that is going to hinge on China in many respects, because that was a that was a growing market for U.S. ethanol, uh, DDGs and, and, and the like. And, and I think having at least that partially resolved, uh, despite all the concerns about the coronavirus, I think uh, is definitely going to play in the industry's favor. But uh, you know, the whole year last year was just tough, you know, negative margins. I mean, lots of lots of rough moments, production shutting down. And so, uh, yeah, I, I don't see it getting any worse. And I, I do think that, uh, you know, we've kind of turned the page here. Yeah, a lot of the hope is based on exports to China. But Undersecretary McKinney told me and then told everyone at the meeting yesterday that so far they've not had any commitments from China indicating they're going to, be making those purchases of ethanol anytime soon, but uh, even he is still hopeful that they will come. Yeah, you know, and, and so far, I mean, you know, as he was talking about yesterday, the, uh, you know, there's been no word from China or the USTR or anybody that uh, uh, the Chinese are going to back off the ag purchases. Uh, even with all the concerns that we've got with that with the virus, uh, just really not hearing much about uh, the trade side of things. But I do think that things are starting to slowly pick up. 
um, I think we're going to start, you know, we're already, I think, slowly starting to see some exports pick up to China. Um, but definitely, I, I think until the Chinese uh, get that situation under control with the virus, I, I do think that things are probably going to proceed with a little bit of caution. I think it is interesting, too. Both biodiesel and ethanol industries are positioning themselves to take advantage of the climate change movement in this country. However you feel about climate change, there's going to be a lot of policy around it. And uh, these low-carbon fuel policies, like the one in California, which once was considered a threat to ethanol, is now considered uh, kind of the template for other states to kind of come up with their versions of it and create opportunities for biofuels. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and Mike, we're uh, we're seeing a lot of work being done on a Midwest version of of an LCFS. And I think, uh, you know, it's still it's still kind of early in the process with that. But I do think that that might provide um, at least some thought uh, in this part of the country about how we can benefit from ethanol and biodiesel uh, even more, whether it be carbon markets or whatever the case may may be. And so, yeah, you're right. There's a lot of talk nationally. A lot of different states are looking at these policies, and as much as we focus on the RFS, um, I think it's safe to say that the future is in uh, some of these state policies. I mean, we've seen California uh, just explode for ethanol. I mean, we're seeing a lot of demand there for ethanol, um, and it's because it fits into their into their LCFS really nicely. And so, yeah, I think the future is definitely at the state level. Because it also positions industries like ethanol and, and biodiesel uh, to not get left out of this push towards right. whether it be uh, electric, battery, or whatever you want to call it, uh, energy sources moving forward, saying, uh, making sure people realize, hey, we've got something right here right now that works and, and, and can meet these uh, standards you're looking at. Absolutely. You know, and, you know, there was a session during the conference this week uh, talking about some some little-known uh, possible markets for ethanol. You know, there's po- possibility in power generation. There's possibilities. Uh, we've got a company that's developing an engine, uh, a diesel-type engine that can burn on ethanol. And so there's a lot of things uh, that I think people are going to be surprised of here in the next decade, 15 years. Uh, you know, it's kind of a longer-term thing, but I, I think that there's a lot of things on the horizon that, uh, that the industry is pointing to and has quite a bit of uh, guarded optimism. The other thing I thought was interesting, each year they the industry releases a, a study on the economic impact and contributions of the ethanol industry, and we know 2019 was a down year, but when you look at the jobs created and the economic activity and contributions made by the industry, even in a down year, it's significant. That shows how important uh, the ethanol industry has become to our general economy, but also in particular our rural economy. Absolutely. You know, and we and I think, uh, you know, had it not been the year that it was last year, I mean, I think those figures on jobs and so on obviously would have been higher. You know, at one point we had about 20 ethanol plants that had shut down production. Uh, And, you know, with the biodiesel industry, a lot of down production there as well. And so, uh, you know, now that we've got some tax policies figured out for biodiesel and uh, I think we're moving in the right direction with ethanol policy, I I do think that 2020 is going to be quite a bit different when it comes to jobs and the economic uh, opportunity that uh, the industries provide. Well, I just wrote a commentary talking about how over the years the ethanol industry has turned a lot of corners, and they're turning another one here now, and they're hoping it's for a a brighter future and that the light that they're seeing as they turn this corner is one of uh, of prosperity and not another train coming right at them. (laughs) 
Exactly right. Yeah, you know, I think, uh, you know, in the set, you know, another thing we should mention the phase two agreement with China that's in the works. Um, you know, I suspect there's probably going to be more from that as well for agriculture. But um, yeah, I, I think as we look, you know, at the end of last year, so many things happened at the end of the year that were quite positive, uh, not just in ethanol, but in agriculture in general. And I think um, at the very least, we've put, uh, we've put to bed a lot of the big issues that really hurt the industry last year. All right, Todd, it was good to see you this week in Houston. Stay warm. Thanks a lot. Yeah, appreciate it, Mike. Thank you. Take care. DTN reporter Todd Neely. Up next, Mike Steenhook, Executive Director of the Soy Transportation Coalition. We talk about some infrastructure projects. Stay with us on AOA. Farmers can't choose the weather, trade policy, or market prices. But they can choose the most advanced dicamba with confidence. Ingenia Herbicide has the lowest volatility of all dicamba salts for more successful on-target applications. And it's straight from the dicamba experts, BASF. So make the confident choice for your soybean crop. Talk to your BASF rep or authorized retailer. Ingenia Herbicide is a U.S. EPA restricted-use pesticide. Additional state restrictions may apply. Always read and follow label directions. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. The Army Corps of Engineers recently released their fiscal 2020 work plan, and it includes work on the Lower Mississippi River Deepening Project. Here to talk about that is Mike Steenhook, Executive Director of the Soy Transportation Coalition. Mike, thanks for joining us. I know this is uh, certainly very welcome news. This is a very important project. Tell us why it's so important. Well, the, the Lower Mississippi River, which is that kind of stretch from Baton Rouge, Louisiana, goes past New Orleans and into the Gulf of Mexico, that's a 256-mile stretch of the river. It, it accounts for 60% of U.S. soybean exports, 59% of corn exports, so by far the number one launching point for both commodities to the international marketplace. And so having that channel well-maintained and now with the announcement from the Corps of Engineers actually improved by having a, a deeper draft level or water depth level from 45 feet to 50 feet, what that will essentially do is allow us to load some of these vessels with more revenue-producing freight. We estimate 500,000 additional bushels of soybeans per vessel uh, whether it's a current vessel that you can just load deeper or a larger vessel, um, it's just going to improve the economics of our industry and our the competitiveness of our exports. So Congress provided the funding. The Trump administration authorized the project to move forward. It gave it the green light. And so now we've, we've crossed the goal line, and now we're able to commence work on this project. Big win for uh, agriculture and, and I think the broader economy. And that's... Uh separate from any infrastructure uh, program or projects that might get approved this year by Congress, right? I mean, both sides, as we talked before, they're each making proposals. Uh, what's the latest there? Yeah, there, there's a number of things that are going to be uh, discussed during the course of the year. Uh, one relates to a Water Resources Development Act, and that's kind of a, a an authorization legislation that kind of reestablishes what the strategy will be uh, for 
you know, locks and dams and other components of the inland waterway system. They need to do that every two years. And then they also need to do every five years uh, what's called the highway bill. And that's kind of a, a strategy for how we're going to improve our nation's roads and bridges. So that those things are certainly separate. They're, they're important. Um, so you're, you still have that authorization step and then that appropriation step that are needed for those things. For the deep thing, the lower Mississippi River, the authorization occurred years ago. Congress provided the funding shortly before Christmas of 2019, and then we got the green light from the Corps of Engineers to move forward on it. So that, that project is moving forward separate from these other projects that are, you know, are indeed important, but really happy to see that this uh, key region for soybean and corn exports will be able to be improved. The president even highlighted infrastructure in his State of the Union address. Yeah, and I think that's really notable. Um, you know, whenever the president mentions infrastructure in a in a really important address, like like the State of the Union, with all of the things that he can talk about, making sure that you carve out time for infrastructure, I think is notable. What I also thought was very notable is that was one of the rare occasions where Republicans and Democrats both stood up and actually clapped for something. <laughs> and so I think that that bodes well for getting something done on infrastructure. Both Republicans and Democrats, the administration and Congress, they all want to be able to prove to the American people that they're capable of doing some of the core functions of government. And I would argue infrastructure is one of those core functions. And so, um, you know, we're hopeful that they'll actually be able to, you know, keep this momentum going that we have on, on infrastructure. You know, with us deepening the lower Mississippi River, uh, one of the messages I want to see transmitted is, here's an example of, of something getting done we want to do more of that, and I think that would be a great message to the American people. We're talking with Mike Steenhook, Executive Director of the Soy Transportation Coalition. Of course, Mike, when you say infrastructure, uh, it means different things to different people. Some immediately think of locks and dams. Some thinks of road. You know, some think of roads and bridges. Others think of broadband. All are important. All can be part of an infrastructure package. But when you have that many needs, uh, how do you prioritize it? Will that are you concerned that bogs things down again and the lack of not being able to do everything keeps them from doing anything? Yeah, I mean, that that's always the real challenge. You know, with, you know the thing with agriculture that's kind of particularly unique about our industry is, you know, we don't have the luxury of saying, we will just use inland waterways or we will just use rail or trucking. You know, agriculture agriculture occurs, as we all know, where the conditions are appropriate for it. So you, you kind of have to hope that infrastructure comes to you versus you locate yourself in proximity to infrastructure. So you, you kind of have to have all these things. You have to have that rural road and bridge and highway and interstate and freight rail and inland waterway and ports. So they're all, they're all really critical. And, you know, you're always as strong as your weakest link. So it, it doesn't do us a whole lot of good to really focus disproportionately on one mode of transportation because we know that there's other links that lead up to it and other links that emanate from it. So we, we really have to make sure that we've got a balanced approach, that we're attentive to each of those links in our logistics chain. Because um, if, if we're not, then we're not going to be able to be profitable. Supply will not be able to connect with demand. Yeah, we talk about it all the time. Uh, all this emphasis on trade, well, that's important to sign these trade deals. If we can't move the product out of the country, it, it really doesn't mean that much. That's why it's so important to get these infrastructure improvements made. Yeah, you, you know, and I, I try to make this point to our elected officials. You, 
you can't care about export increases without infrastructure increases. Um, it's kind of a package deal. And so you, you really have to, to, to have that. And, you know, with this aspiration to be able to export more to, you know, perhaps to China, to other countries, you know, we've got to make corresponding investments uh, in infrastructure. Otherwise, you know, we'll do a good job of growing a crop and, and there may be demand for that crop, but, you know, supply and demand, demand will just look at each other. The, the transaction will never occur. So you've got to have that infrastructure. So this deepening of the lower Mississippi that you talked about earlier is certainly a piece of the big picture, but it's an important piece, isn't it? it, it it's critical just because of so much of so much of our exports leave from that, that area. And, you know, when you look at, you know, our inland waterway system, what's so unique about it is that it penetrates into the most productive farm ground arguably on the planet. And so you can be a farmer in Ohio this is important to you. You can be a farmer in Kentucky. It's important to you. Minnesota, um, Arkansas, Iowa, et cetera, Illinois, all of these states that really have access to this navigable series of waterways, um, you're going to benefit from this. And farmers in the interior part of the country will benefit in the form of a more favorable basis because, you know, when, when we make these kind of improvements to our supply chain, Farmers often realize the benefit from that in the form of a more favorable basis. So uh, what excites me perhaps the most is this has the prospect of adding more dollars in a farmer's wallet during a time where that's desperately needed. How soon will the Corps start on this project, and how long will it take? Well, now that the green light has been given, now that that really uh, accelerated discussions at the local level down in the lower Mississippi River area, uh, we think that you could see work starting kind of that first component of it uh, yet this fall uh, and seeing that first component of it completed within a six-month to a year period of time. So this is not too far off in the distant future for something as important and as big as this infrastructure project is. Uh, the rest of it getting all the way up to that Baton Rouge area, uh, to the northern part of this kind of shipping channel, you know, that may take another two to three uh, to four years. But, you know, when you look at some of these infrastructure projects that this country has endeavored to do that can take years and years and years, arguably decades, the fact that this is something that we could see, um, you know, completed within a pretty short period of time, I think is, you know, significant and it will provide benefit to farmers. But it shows even what that's considered a short period of time, two to four years, let's say, but it shows how major of a project this is. Yeah, I mean, this is, this is a, you know, it's, it's, it's important and things can get kind of compounded when you have, say, flooding conditions like we had in 2019, mm-hmm. which all of a sudden, you know, sent a bunch more water down to that lower part of the river. You saw more sediment buildup than normal than you normally would have. So there's always maintenance dredging that occurs down there year in and year out. What's unique about this project is you're actually going deeper than just maintaining the channel at its current depth. You're actually improving it. So things can really, you know, wrenches can get thrown into this, like you know any infrastructure project can. But um, yeah, we we're we're very optimistic that we can see some tangible benefit in the near future. Um, but it's gonna. We need to make sure that we're sustaining this momentum. Very good, Mike. Thanks for the update. Some good news. We appreciate it. Thank you, Mike.
Mike Steenhook, Executive Director of the Soy Transportation Coalition. Well, some more numbers out this week from USDA. We'll go over those and talk markets with Arlen Suderman with INTL FC Stone next on AOA. Time now for a market check here on Adams on Agriculture. I'm Rusty Halverson from the American Ag Network. Grain and oil seed sector, a mix early on Thursday. Corn and wheat futures declining, while soybean futures trending two to six cents higher. Ag weather forecast calling for a brief drier period through the weekend for most areas of the Midwest as a system moves out today. In the central and southern plains, it'll be mostly dry until early next week. Chicago wheat stemming losses with a rally. On this Thursday, an hour into the session, we are trending two to five and a fraction lower in Chicago wheat. March contract at 544 and three quarters, down two and three quarters. Kansas City wheat March down six and a quarter, 464 and three quarters. Minneapolis spring wheat March down four at 527. September new crop down four at 553 and three quarters. In corn, the March contract is down three and a quarter at 379 and three quarters. December 391 and a quarter, down a penny and three quarters. But soybean futures rallying. March up six and a quarter, 898 and three quarters of a cent. That's the high of the day. November 924 and a quarter, up three, a fraction of a cent off the high of the day. Livestock at the Merck after yesterday's rally. Live cattle futures. Given some back, April live cattle down 60 at 117.25. Feeder cattle April up a nickel per hundred weight, near unchanged, 137.20. Lean hog futures, the April contract, 47 cents higher, 64.25. Outside market, the Dow is down 157. NASDAQ down 44. S&P down 12. March crude oil in New York, 41 cents higher at 51.57. You're listening to AOA. I'm Rusty Halverson for the American Ag Network. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now back to Mike Adams. More numbers released this week. Let's uh, talk about that and more with Arlen Suderman, Chief Commodities Economist for INTL FC Stone. Arlen, thanks for joining us. Anything stand out in uh, this week's reports? Uh, probably the thing that stood out the most was what USDA WASDE did with the export uh, targets, raising the soybean target by end the wheat target while lowering the corn target. I think the wheat was probably most justified because we have seen a strengthening of shipments, and uh, I think USDA was uh, needed to raise that target. Uh, the corn target, you could certainly argue that we're way behind the pace that we need to be to hit USDA's target. Uh, the previous target, and uh, uh, we've just seen a very aggressive shipping uh, pattern coming out of the southern hemisphere that's made it t- difficult for us to compete. Uh, that should improve as we go forward, but some downward adjustment was was uh, probably justified. On the soybeans, that was probably the one where I'd had the most disagreement. It comes really as USDA WASDE tries to interpret the objectives of the Phase One trade agreement. If coronavirus were not a problem, then you could probably make the argument for increasing the target. 
uh, for soybean exports. I still would debate it, but you could still make a valid argument. But with coronavirus going on and with the big South American crop being harvested now and with the Brazilian real, their currency at record lows versus a dollar, I think it's going to be very difficult to hit USDA's increased target for soybean shipments. Hard to project the impact of coronavirus because we don't know uh, how long it's going to take for this for them to get this under control. Still trying to figure out how widespread it really is. Yeah, it's exactly right. And initially, I downplayed the significance of coronavirus, uh, and then started doing a little bit more in-depth study of it and seeing some difference between this virus and some of the others that we've seen come out of China, most notably the SARS and started seeing some real risks, and we're seeing those risks play out. A a couple of days ago, the market started reacting positively to uh, a slowdown in the growth in numbers of new cases, and I highlighted to our clients at the time, be careful, um, because I had seen a post from a reporter on social media, a reporter with state media in China, talking about how they were changing the definition of a confirmed case and uh, she warned that this could falsely give a, give a false sense of the number of, of people who have the disease because they were raising the bar before someone would be considered a confirmed case. And uh, later, and that was that same day that health authorities did that, that they said, oh, it's slowing down, we're peaking out. Later that day, those health officials were replaced and uh, they were relieved of their duty, so to speak. And after a couple days of assessing the situation, then last night we got the headlines that they had gone back and looked at how things were being reported, that they weren't accurately showing things and updating the numbers and better reflecting just the severity of what's going on. And I think until we see actual evidence that this disease this virus has peaked. We need to be concerned about the potential long-term ramifications of it, not only on China, but on the global economy. And if if you're a producer of a commodity on the potential downside risks of the, on the demand side. We're talking with Arlen Suderman with INTL FC Stone. Here we are mid February, Arlen. Um, We start watching for market signals as far as buying acres. What are the markets saying? Uh, right now, they're they're kind of a neutral between corn and soybeans, and so that would seem to suggest fix your rotations that got out of whack last year because of the uh, unusual planting conditions that we have. Kind of get back to that normal rotation you want. But we are seeing some areas where they want to increase corn a little bit more. We're seeing other areas, like in the Dakotas, uh, where they're thinking twice about corn, uh, with much of it still in the field, especially in North Dakota. And uh, whether you want to take that risk, particularly with a thick, wet snowpack that we have with saturated soil beneath it. Um, so right now I'm at around 94 million acres for corn and about 86 million for soybeans. But uh, this is a very fluid situation, so to speak. And I think the coronavirus situation could play into impacting the markets going forward. And um, especially as we get into the month of March, if we don't see any fresh buying from China and tied to the phase one trade deal because of coronavirus, um, see which markets get more negatively impacted could really impact that final 5 or 10% of acres. 
also hard to predict the number of prevent plant acres. Hopefully not as many as last year, but the potential is there for quite a few acres, again, not to get planted. Well, it really is. Uh, one of the reasons we have so much corn still in the field is because it didn't get planted until basically after the May 20 window opened up, and the, we couldn't plant before that because we had such a snowpack and um, last year, very similar to this year, and this year the soils are even more saturated. So it doesn't give you a lot to encourage it will be in a better situation. And if it comes down to it, I think last year a lot of farmers wanted to have their typical optimism, say, well, we'll find a way to get the crop in. And this year it's, man, I wish I would have done prevent plant. Maybe I'll be quicker to do that this year. A lot of corn not sold, but a, a lot of corn also not a very good quality that's not sold, and farmers dealing with that issue. I had a farmer tell me on uh, social media a couple of days ago that he, I think it was yesterday, that he had just simply disposed of a couple semi-loads of uh, poor quality corn. It was so bad he couldn't get rid of it. Um, and, and that's a real concern, and some of that worst corn is still in the field needing to come in as well. Uh, we saw in the February 1 grind report, which was for the month of December, that in December already we saw uh, the yield on ethanol production going down, so it took about 4% more corn to produce the same amount of ethanol because of the low test weight problem, reflecting low starch content, low energy content in the kernels. I've heard similar stories on the livestock end of needing more corn to get the same rate of gain. And we should see this eventually show up in the balance sheet, although it's going to take time, I think, for USDA to recognize that. We should see ethanol uh, consumption of corn go up, assuming demand for ethanol stays the same. And we should see feed usage of corn go up as well as we go through the year. Particularly, we need to watch those um, first-of-the-month grind reports on the ethanol side and then the quarterly stocks reports uh, for evidence of that. And I think we'll see more shrinkage in the bin as well, which will show up in the quarterly stocks reports as well, particularly as we get into the last half of the marketing year. So what do you see as a potential rallying point? Uh, is it good news on the coronavirus? Would that spark a rally, or what do you see as a uh, potential rally point? I think the number one issue right now is the coronavirus because longer term, I'd say it's a tra it's the phase one trade deal with China. I'm one of the optimists that, you know, I'm not going to say that they're going to buy 36 and a half million or excuse me, billion dollars worth of uh, ag products this year that they're going to hit that target. But I do think that changes are significant enough that we will see a notable increase in trade with China. But the coronavirus is going to make that very difficult to happen right now. If we could get a peak in the coronavirus and start easing concerns, especially inside of China here in the next couple of weeks, then I think China could devote some more resources to making the changes necessary internally to allow that trade to take place. We've still got to battle our strong dollar versus the the currencies of some of the countries we're competing with, but I think that would start opening the door, especially for pork shipments to go into China. There's a big, much better opportunity now there than what we've seen yet in this whole ASF issue. Um, but until the coronavirus, as long as it's continuing to get worse rather than better, 
uh, it's going to be all hands on deck in China. I wouldn't be surprised if they make some type of an announcement after the 15th of February about a purchase to try to give an impression that all is okay inside of China, but I just really can't see them doing much in the way of taking shipments until this virus peaks out and starts to improve. And finally, you alluded to it earlier what's coming out of uh, South America as far as their crop. Uh, what should we watch there? What do we What do we know about the, that crop coming out? Well, the soybean crop yields are coming in better than expected initially. As we get further south and into later in the harvest, we expect those yields to go down because they had more dry weather stress. But still, we're looking at a big crop that's getting a little bit bigger. It's a record crop. First crop corn yields the same way, but the main corn crop is the safrina corn crop, and it's being planted right now. We do not see any significant weather risks on the horizon, but it's very, very early. That would be like predicting weather risks here in the Midwest uh, during the month of April and early May. So there's plenty of time. Some That's something to be watching as we go forward. All right, Arlen, lots going on. Thanks for the update. Thank you, Mike. Always good to talk with Yarlin Suderman, Chief Commodities Economist for INTL FC Stone. Well, meanwhile, the efforts to keep African swine fever out of the United States uh, continue and, in fact, are being ramped up. We're going to get an update on that. We know African swine fever has spread to other countries. We'll get an update on that as well, especially in Europe. Um, what? What's the situation there? Is it getting into Germany? That's a key supplier to China for pork. We're going to talk about all that with the chief veterinarian for the National Pork Producers Council. Liz Wagstrom joins us next. Stay with us here on AOA. want to restrict your freedom and crush the spirit of your soybeans never fear life liberty and the pursuit of superior weed control is here with liberty herbicide stand proud with greater application flexibility unmatched convenience and excellent performance combined with the liberty link liberty link gt27 and enlist e3 trade systems and it has no known resistance in u.s row crops talk with your basf rep or authorized retailer about liberty herbicide always read and follow label directions information america's farmers and ranchers need to know adams on agriculture now back to mike adams efforts to keep african swine fever out of the united states are not only ongoing they are being ramped up and with an update let liz wagstrom joins us liz is the chief veterinarian for the national pork producers council liz thanks for joining us what's the latest that you can tell us on on these prevention efforts that so far thankfully have been successful in keeping african swine fever out of the u.s yep good morning mike yeah we are very pleased that earlier this week the house of representatives passed senate bill 2107 what that does is it authorizes funding for 720 new agricultural inspection um, inspectors at our ports of entry, whether it's airports, seaports, or land ports, as well as other technicians to work with them. It also authorizes 60 more canine teams. So um, it will be going to the president's desk. It's been through both houses, and now we'll, um, we expect it to be signed uh, yet this week. 
Meanwhile, the, the virus continues to spread. What can you tell us about what's happening in Europe? Yeah, so Europe uh, continues to spread. Greece um, announced last week that they had their first cases. Um, we watch it marching um, westward in Poland to where it's now just about six or seven miles from the, the German border. We understand the Germans have put up some double um, electrical fencing along the border, and they are um, starting to try to um, get snipers out to kill um, wild boar on their side of the border to to thin out the herd so maybe they won't have a susceptible herd there for for it to move into. What do we know about the situation in China itself? You know, China has been pretty quiet. You know, we um, understand that there are is move to try to repopulate and to also build new farms. And um, from what we're hearing from people on the ground there, those um, successes or the success of repopulation is iffy, that they have had um, several, you know, a fair percentage of them rebreak with the disease. Meanwhile, we heard about the possibility of a vaccine being developed uh, for African swine fever. What is the latest on that? Sure. The, the scientists at Plum Island are truly a national treasure. They do fabulous work, and they have a vaccine candidate that is actually uh, genetically edited where they have um, taken out what they believe is the virulence gene. They have had really good success in very small clinical trials with that. It's got a lot of steps to go through before it would be available to the public. It, first of all, they need to identify a commercial partner and get that technology transferred to that partner. And then it needs to be adapted to a cell line and be gr- so it can grow um, routinely to a high enough concentration that it could actually be made into a vaccine. And as they get to that point in v- of time, they then need to do trials where um, they would be able to show data to USDA for licensing. And then after going through all those steps, and you'd have to also the manufacturing of enough product and distribution of it, I mean, that adds even more to the timeline. Correct. I mean, you know, I think from some of the initial press, people were thinking it was maybe months away. Realistically, it still would be years away. We're talking with Liz Wagstrom, Chief Veterinarian for the National Pork Producers Council. So let's come back here to these efforts to keep it out of the United States. Uh, and I, I talk about this a lot. I know it was even a conversation at the uh, cattle industry convention last week that if we had an outbreak of African swine fever in this country, it would not just af- affect uh, pork producers and the pork industry in the United States. It really would uh, shut down much of agriculture, right, as far as transportation and so many things. Absolutely. You know, we look at what would happen if we have 27% more pork on the market in the United States because we can't export. Prices would be depressed with pork. It would pull down um chicken and beef prices, if we have a lot of losses as far as numbers of animals that had to be depopulated or died, you know, that depresses the corn and soybean market because we're, you know, one of their major customers. Um, And of course, our farmers that would be impacted um, don't have money to go buy, you know, new trucks or go down to Main Street and and, um, support the, the businesses in rural America. And at the same time, you're working on prevention efforts to keep the the virus out of the United States, you also have to be working on plans just in case it does come. 
Absolutely. We um, have had a very close partnership with USDA on um, response and preparedness planning. Uh, we had a big exercise with the 14 top swine states back in September, trying to take learnings from that and move forward. Um, the state veterinarians from the top, I think, 16 or 17 swine states um, uh, have a regular um, conference call on planning. I think they said they're spending a couple hours a week with each other planning. Um, USDA has um, looked at now holding a new exercise on with the packers to say, you know, how we looked at what we do on the farms, but how would the packing industry be impacted? And so um, USDA is taking this very seriously. We're really happy with the partnership we have. Um, we're better off this year than we were last year on preparedness, and we still have a lot of work to do. Liz, could we have African swine fever in the U.S. now and just not know it yet? It'd be pretty unlikely. Um, you know, it it is a disease that is um, 90 to 100% fatal. And though even it, that it might mimic other diseases and it... Um, moves slowly, it's still with that kind of mortality, if it were here, people would be um, concerned enough that they would be going to the diagnostic lab with those those cases. And the diagnostic labs now are testing anything that looks like it could be African swine fever. Um, you know, the veterinarian might turn it in and think, say, you know, our, I think it might be salmonella, but but the D-Labs have money from USDA to also test those cases for, for African and classical swine fever. All right, Liz. Thank you for the update. Thank you, Mike. Take care. Liz Wagstrom, Chief Veterinarian for the National Pork Producers Council. That wraps it up for today. Thanks for joining us here on AOA. Have a great day. I'm Mike Adams. This is Adams on Agriculture. <music>